so tell me where you are sheltering in place if that's what in fact you're doing yes i'm i'm sheltering i um live in a flat so small that it um closely resembles a boat um which is good for these choppy waters um and i live in walthamstow so i am here in the furthest northern east reaches of london um yeah and it's lovely it's really it's really nice actually there's a very very strong community here i thought for some reason you'd be in the countryside somewhere isn't your family in the country they are in kentish town they're also in london this is the thing you're in brooklyn you know we're born and bred city people you know you don't leave the city when the crisis comes well i think it's good to remain in the center of things yeah um um, and now there's so much more room in uh, London since Prince Harry and you know who are here somewhere. <laughs> Great, let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, um, you are just working on a new exhibition. Tell me what it is. So um, it's a big show of Jean Dubuffet. So in New York, you guys have been very lucky because you've had a whole amazing run of exhibitions. You had um, the fantastic Soul of the Underground at MoMA. Um, there was a great show at the Morgan Library that went to the Hammer. Uh, really great show at the Folk Art Museum. Aquavella did a show. I mean, you've had a whole spate. And in London, the last show we had was in 1966. <laughs> so it's a bit Jean de Watt. <laughs> <laughs> But it gives you such a great open field. Um, so, I mean, you're just, you know, like reinventing the artist for London. Yeah. yeah. For I mean, all those people who come to London. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Come to London. Um, 29th of September. Uh, it's all going to be fine by then. Um, no, it is exciting. And I think I've been thinking a lot about the resonances between Dubuffet and our current crisis because in many ways so my reason for wanting to do it is for anyone who hasn't seen the Barbican the Barbican is the largest brutalist art center in the world uh, which means that it's a very particular kind of tough concrete aesthetic um, but brutalism very much directly relates to art brute so in a way my thinking was that a kind of doing a Dubuffet show in the Barbican was about a, about as site specific as you could get um, and also, you know, I was kind of curious about the fact that he'd always been an artist I was really interested in. And then, you know, for Basquiat, he's like, Basquiat's, Basquiat's mad about him. Keith Haring's mad about him. You know, this younger generation of artists in the 80s, um, he's a kind of complete hero to them. And yet so many of the people who admire Basquiat and Haring and others of that period have no idea what the kind of artistic origins are of that work. So it felt to me... Uh, sort of very timely but I was also interested in the fact that the Barbican is built onto a blitz site so it's very much the definition of a post-war project it's like what should the future of culture look like in the second half of the 20th century and Dubuffet although he's born in 1901 he only fully commits himself to becoming an artist in 1942 so in the midst of the occupation of Paris I mean it's a kind of it's also a crisis, you know, and it's also a, an extraordinary and visceral moment in time. And um, his whole kind of artistic project is about a sort of ground zero, like 
when culture is completely raised to the ground, if if the Second World War had kind of you know defeated any claim to a civilized aesthetic, how what what does the Beaux Arts mean after the atrocities of war? Then what? Then what do we make? Now what? And I I think there's a way in which that kind of um, searching and reckoning with a really kind of critical moment in time, I think it will be really interesting in our own context. Did he, um, I had no idea of the relationship uh, with Herring and, um, and Basquiat, or at least their interest in his work. Did he escape to London during that time or did he remain in Paris during the occupation? He remained in Paris and he, Again, I, you know, I think about um, some of what we're talking about at the moment about ideas of flight or escape or remain and lean in and, you know, where do you position yourself? And, and he speaks during the occupation. He, he writes these beautiful letters in which he says that people are frightened and terrified. And he says, I am exhilarated because he feels really kind of... Um, fascinated by the contemporary context and it means he has to start to make work in quite a coded way so you know when he's making seemingly innocent images of jazz lineups for instance we have to remember that jazz was like outlawed during the occupation um, when he's making his metro series in the mid-1940s we have to think well the metro was a really important place for the resistance fighters during the war so it's all quite loaded but um, but yeah, he absolutely remains in place and is and is is gripped by that. But he does then have this very powerful connection to London. So the ICA do a major show of his work in 1955, and a whole slew of British artists see that show. And you know, David Hockney, for instance, has been very articulate about that being one of the most influential. Um, exhibitions on him as, as a young artist. Uh, likewise, we just had a great show of Paula Rigo, um, in which she says she didn't manage to get to the show, but she did get a copy of the catalogue. And she worked off the back of that 1955 Dubuffet catalogue for six months or more. Well, again, I had spoken about the essential uh, importance of catalogues with someone on another conversation uh, previously. And we talked about just how important catalogs of museum exhibitions are. Um, you know, in one hand, you have the fleeting and time-limited exhibition. And then, of course, you have the permanent catalog. And it's, yeah. I always feel so, um, so sorry and upset and wish I could have done something about it when I go into a, see a great show in a gallery or a, or a university museum or another museum that doesn't have enough money to do a catalog. And it's just so upsetting. Um, mm -hmm. And But then on the other hand, since my home is filled um, with still hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of catalogs, I gave, I think, when I left the Brooklyn Museum, I think I gave them a thousand catalogs or something that I had and that I kept at the, my office in the museum because there was no place at home. Um, so they are so important. I go back to them all the time. And um, um, so um, are you sticking with the September opening date, I hope? We are. 
we are doing our very best to stay on track and um you know my feeling is that people will need a major exhibition of du buffet in the autumn now more than ever but obviously it's a situation we're monitoring closely the 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 issue not so much obviously in Europe or in uh, or in London the problem I always see um, in New York and other places around America is the confusion between du buffet and and buffet um, yeah. Bernard <laughs> buffet and so I hope your marketing and promotional people make it clear yeah. uh, <laughs> that. <laughs> that uh, you've been working flat out on du buffet. Yeah, um, please. <laughs> so that's fantastic. And how many loans are there? And what are the most distant places that they're coming from? Uh, so there's quite a lot of work in the show. So there are kind of two main groups of work in the show. So in a way, it's a group exhibition because it's, gives the full kind of retrospective career of Dubuffet. So it starts the earliest works of the Massage from 1944, and it runs right through to 1984 to works made very shortly before his death. Um, but we also have two sections of the show dedicated to his art group collections, which were of course such an important part of his whole kind of project as an artist and his whole thinking about, you know, so-called culture with a lowercase c um, and what inspired him. So we'll have a, a section of the show upstairs, um, which is based on an exhibition that he curated at René Durand Gallery um, in 1948. And that shows nine artists upstairs. And then downstairs, there's this kind of amazing moment when and this was the focus of a show at the Folk Art Museum not so long ago in New York, but Dubuffet, you know, gets to a point in the 1950s where the collections are manageable for him. And Alfonso Osorio, who some people will know as an artist and patron and... One of my favourite artists <laughs> and a great work by him hung directly as you faced, just as you were to turn right, to come into my office. Oh. It was an amazing work staring at you with all these eyeballs yeah. looking right at you as you came in. So it sort of warned you uh, <laughs> before you walked into my office. I adored the work and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure where it is now. He, d he really deserves to be better known. And I think especially in Europe, you know, he was a really important connector up between different artists and he, um, he had met Dubuffet when he was spending time in Paris and he'd said, you know, if, why don't you send the collection to my house in the creeks in East Hampton? And Dubuffet says, great, <laughs> let's do it. So he ships off the collection in the early uh, 1950s and it's meant to be there for a very short period of time and it ends up being there in the way that these things do for a decade. And it comes back to him in 1962 and it's this really major moment of reckoning. You know, Dubuffet's just had a big retrospective at the Musée um, Art Deco in Paris, and he's kind of, you know, looking back across his career and thinking about the way forward, and he's looking at all of this work made by these amazing artists, and I think certain common threads run through them. You know, these are artists who are working compulsively and passionately, and often, 
are inventing a singular language for themselves and then they work perpetually in that. It changes and it shifts, but it's broadly one gesture. Um, and that's when he invents Law Loop, basically, which becomes, you know, the longest continuous cycle of work that he makes. And it's 13 years of work and it's very rarely really explained. So for me to have this section dedicated to the collection de la Brute gives you this opportunity to understand it in a different way. Well, if I have to say so, Eleanor, that kind of curatorship and thinking is what makes your exhibitions very special. And so um, helping to make um, things more lucid out of what could be very difficult to understand. And um, I am, you know, I, I applaud that. I think <laughs> while I'm a big fan of singularly monographic exhibitions, not to, not to put an artist into context, um, just not only um, avoids all those influences, not avoids, but doesn't relate all those influences on an artist. And you can say as much as you like in gallery texts and labels and so on. But as they say, um, a, a work of art is worth, uh, I think Barbara Kruger said it, a work of art is worth more than a thousand words. Mm -hmm. so, um, so tell me what else you are doing uh, outside of a life with du buffet well um what else am i doing i'm uh i'm doing sort of various other things i worked on a project um for the aquavella galleries which was due to open in april so that's uh on hold at the moment that's an exhibition of eva hesser and hannah wilkie um uh, you know but... you tackle you tackle <laughs> So many of my favorite um, artists who, as you said um, before, you know, are just, they need more exposure mm. uh, because they were so critical. Yeah. So many, perhaps not as many collectors, but so critical to other artists' work. And of course, yes. in Brooklyn with our, um, our Center for Feminist Art, um, Hannah Wilkie and Eva Hesse are two uh, prominent players. Yeah, and I think, um, I guess often what I'm trying to do with an exhibition, I mean, uh, the first question I always ask of any show is why the show, why now? Which everybody should always ask. Um, it's sort of not good enough. It's interesting that a show hasn't happened for a while, but it's not enough. It needs to be more than that, and it needs to feel timely and it needs to feel like you've got something new to say um so i'm often kind of thinking about like what's the what's the provocation here um and with hesser and wilkie it was really interesting because i like this idea of a tete-a-tete -tete because each artist can kind of provoke the other um and hesser and wilkie raise really interesting feminist questions because they sit on two sides of the dividing line because Eva Hesse dies in 1970 
and she dies too young to really be part of a feminist movement with a capital F. So although we know she reads Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex and we know that she's kind of, you know, she's going through her divorce with Tom Doyle and she's rethinking what it means to be a woman artist and whether it's appropriate to even have the epithet woman alongside being an artist and she's tackling many of those issues um, and she's thinking about what it means to make work related to the body but she's uncomfortable with that bodily imagery or of it being kind of reduced to that um, whereas Hannah Wilkie is the other side of the dividing line and she is out and out and she's talking about explicit vaginal imagery and she's talking about the power of that and what it means and how this can kind of, you know, change, change the shape of the art world for her. And she's much closer to a generation of artists like Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro. And, and, and yet when you link these two sides together, you realize that there are so many false dichotomies that we make in the art world. You know, we neatly divvy stuff up <laughs> and, and life is messier than that. And, and I'm kind of always interested in like reclaiming some of that messiness and getting back to something that feels like a truer texture. So, so yeah, that I hope will be an interesting show if and when it can open. Well, let me ask a question. That sounds to me like the basis of a very important um, museum show. Is it possible that uh, your work in the gallery will, uh, will um, expand to become something uh, in a year or two down the road for the museum? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think the, in a way what was interesting for me about it as a starting point you know, obviously this question about galleries and museums and the difference between them is kind of interesting and we know that it's kind of narrowing in many ways. You know, galleries can now stage these amazing, like, quote, unquote, museum quality shows. And I think one of the things that was interesting for me about working with the Aquavellas is the Barbican is enormous. It's 1,500 square meters. I have no idea what that is in square feet. I think it's like... A lot. Feet ...or something. It's huge. So, um, and it's across two floors and it means that curatorially you're all the time coming up with ideas and then you think about them in the space and they're exhausting. Like they're just, they don't have that, you know, it, it must be the same, you know, you think of someone like Don DeLillo writing, you know, these enormous tomes of books and then suddenly he comes out with Falling Man or The Body Artist and it's like this desire for a novella. So for me, the Aquavella project is a novella. It's like an opportunity to do something really kind of beautiful and contained. And, you know, Eva Hesse only starts really making the work that we think of as Eva Hesse in 1965. She dies in 1970. You've got five years of work. It's incredibly fragile. Like, you're not going to be able to stage a much bigger show than that these days. So actually, it's really kind of... Um, a nice thing to do on a on a small scale and it's it's nice in terms of a kind of curatorial practice to have things of different sorts of sizes and shapes because they test you it you know it well but they test you in different ways as a curator and i think that's really interesting if you're always producing things for the same space and the same kind of audience you know you repeat yourself a little bit you know, you are so wise and so young. <laughs> I'm not sure how I put those two together easily. 
Um, Next time I'll take you on a tour of the loft. You can go and see my Dorian Gray painting. <laughs> but um, and what you say is certainly uh, true. Um, and also in this context with, with the, the Hesse material, well, with all that material, um, I think Aquavella probably has as much or more clout um, with collectors and museums uh, than a museumite in gathering together that kind of material. Well, they were pretty amazing. They gave me a carte blanche. They were like, here's the space. Absolutely nothing will be for sale. Those were the terms, you know. This is a non-commercial exhibition. It's being done purely for kind of academic interest. And what would you like to show? Well, and that um, is an amazing, amazing invitation. It certainly is. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's also, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to see um, that that kind of crossover between the museum, um, you know, great museum people and great gallery people um, works uh, in London. It's so fraught with issues here in the United States, even as a non-commercial show, nothing for sale, um, I would be, um, it would be interesting to see how many American museums would allow one of their curators um, to do a show under that different auspices. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I think that's super absolutely super and um, but it, um also, it, it takes you out of um you know like i was saying about it being a part of your curatorial practice but it's also it forces you as a curator to really think very carefully about what you have to say and what you have to contribute you know in the same way you know i write a lot as well i write for the london review of books and you know some essays for um things here and there and and every time I take on a project like that it I can't hide under the Barbican you know roof <laughs> and think this is a Barbican show and if it doesn't go down well it's a Barbican show that doesn't go down well it's really me on the line and I think um at least for me because I and all of this comes back to ideas about kind of subjectivity and how much of ourselves we should or shouldn't place into the work that we do and I think for me because I believe very very wholeheartedly in putting a lot of yourself in the work that you do it's and it and it shows it certainly shows the other thing well, yeah. the other thing I was going to say is I'm assuming of course that this will have a catalog yeah yeah that's, that's great and that I'll get an autographed copy you can I will sign it this afternoon for you. <laughs> Perfect. And it's part of what I think makes the whole situation now of, um, of being at home. I find it very, uh, I find it very creatively interesting because I don't think I've ever really hidden my home in my professional life anyway. I mean, it's now more literally exposed. Right. But I think there's something very healthy about, um, removing that theatrical curtain or removing some kind of image as if there is such a thing as an institutional project 
connect. You know, there are a bunch of people coming together, trying to collaborate to make something happen. And, and actually, if we all acknowledge the common humanity in those gestures, you end up with something that's more intelligent and more empathetic and easier for people to relate to because they can see that it was also made by a bunch of humans sort of testing something out saying we think this do you think this well you know it's i mean i'm so old and have <laughs> been in the um, world the art world for such a long time in the museum world especially that i and we've come such a long way because i i truly recall people suggesting to me, visitors to whatever museum I was involved with at the time, people suggesting to me when you ask them about an exhibition or about what's said in a text or how works were grouped together, their response was pretty much as though God yeah. everything in place and yeah. that there was a kind of a sterile approach to these museum shows or just galleries filled with collection. It was void of people, of emotions, of subjectivity. Um, and it's taken a very long time um, for both the viewer and so many of the makers of exhibitions and museum presentations to understand that there's nothing wrong to personalize work, to have your thoughts, your impressions, uh, your dreams um, be right out there with, a, um, uh, with works of art by someone else. Um, and for years, I've always tried to force, when, when others wouldn't do it, um, people to sign texts mm -hmm. and to credit people very clearly and loudly um, as the curators using their good judgment, sometimes not so good judgment, but mm -hmm. most of the time good judgment, um, in bringing this to us, just the way a, a, a novelist um, would create characters in a book. But I think the problems, one of the things I find interesting is um, I don't think the problems with visitors, my experience has always been that visitors love information. The more information you'll give them, oh, the better. We are, we are together on that. And the people uh, who rail against it often are critics. Because right. Critics and, art, and, and artists sometimes, and, and artists. artists, yeah, can feel like it's unprofessional, and I don't think it is. It's it's just rendering something more intimate and more accessible, and there's a there's a kind of truth to it that things are not made in a vacuum, um, and I think it feels more emotionally mature to me as a response. Like it sounds silly, but I have um I have a very soft spot for UK hip hop. And there's a, there's a great artist who always has this like returning motif in this song in which he says, I made this in my bedroom because it's about the kind, you know, the like lo-fi intimacy of the UK hip hop scene. And you think, do you know what? Like I made this in my bedroom. <laughs> like most of what I do, I make in my bedroom. 
And right. I sort of mentally think maybe I should put that in a PV speech or something. Be like, just so you know, guys, like this wasn't. I, I think you should. And <laughs> I put up a national poll to see how many people produce what they do in their bedrooms. Yeah. Um, it would be an interesting, I mean, I have to work at the desk because I have to, it's just the, you know, again, I'm a different age group and you worked at a desk and I'm never comfortable writing in, in bed. I'm barely even comfortable reading in bed. Um, but, um, no, I think all of that is so true. And again, you see that when you come into one of your exhibitions. So I have a last question for you. Oh. <laughs> if you could just look into the future, which I know you do, what is the- Regularly. If you could choose one thing to work on, one exhibition, one artist or group of artists, I'm asking you the most difficult question that I could- I mean, possible. just <laughs> what comes first? Not what needs to be done, but what could you do with the most affection and enjoyment, um, even if the exhibition turned out only for you? Okay, so the thing that comes to mind is, because you think it's a hypothetical exercise, so any. I can do any show I like, uh, is that John Graham did a rather amazing exhibition in the 40s that Lee Krasner was in called French and American Painting. I like the titles were pretty straightforward then, you know, to the point, French and American Painting. And it was how, um, it was how Krasner first met Pollock. And I was always kind of interested in this idea of the moment at which a kind of new American art is born and the relationship to the so-called French masters at that time. So you basically start in 1929, I think, with the opening of the Museum of Modern Art and that first show in which they're, you know, being blown away by these four French artists. And you'd probably run, you know, maybe do 30 years until 1959, something like that. And you would run right through to Joan Mitchell living right next to Monet's house and re-ingesting that whole French landscape and that whole kind of recalibration of the paysage through a different kind of American mindset. Something, something in that. Uh, somehow with the um, intelligent um, uh, way in which you just put this forward, I think you've thought about this before. <laughs> so, okay, well. I just have an excuse to show Van Gogh and Joe Mitchell. That's, that's all. Oh, I'm my God. I'd come to that. I would come to that. You know, yeah, you a lot of people would come to that. <laughs> the, um, anyway, I yeah. think this, for me, this has been so much fun. And I look forward to being in London again, oh, okay. which I always love. I look forward to seeing you. And if for some reason you're in New York at some point, um, we need to connect for lunch and Definitely. talk more. Definitely. Thank you for doing this. Good luck. Keep working. Stay well. Great to see you. And thank you so much, Eleanor. Yeah, see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.